0: Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Tim Higgins, an automotive and technology reporter at The Wall Street Journal, and author of the best-selling new book, Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the bet, of the century. Thank you for joining us, Tim, and congratulations on the book's success. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be on. Let's just set the stage for our listeners. Uh, Tesla wasn't the first to conceive of the idea of electric vehicles. Your book notes, for instance, that General Motors had experimented with a model as early as the late 90s, early 2000s. Pre-Tesla, what were the trade-offs or obstacles standing in the way of building electric vehicles at something approximating scale?
2: Yeah, The idea of an electric car goes back to almost the early days of the automotive industry more than a 100 years ago. But gasoline-powered vehicles won out uh, for generations and generations. But as the world started to think about climate change and emissions and these sorts of things, there was greater pressure in places like California to to start thinking about zero-emission vehicles. And that's where you see General Motors emerged with an early idea for what could potentially be a mainstream electric vehicle, the EV1. Uh, it comes out for the California market. And it's a good example of what was wrong with thinking of electric cars at that point in time. Uh, it had a lot of compromises. It was struggling to balance the, the these issues of cost of the batteries, which were very expensive versus kind of the range and the ability of the car ultimately gm uh killed that project uh despite the fact that it had some very loyal customers in the california market and that loyalty helped inspire some of the early people at tesla to think well maybe there is a market for electric cars but uh, the insight that the the early tesla people had was start at the high end start uh, an electric car you know that would be sexy and and aspiring to have and that would make people see that an electric car was possible. Uh, and that's really where you see Tesla emerge in 2003 uh, as a startup in Silicon Valley trying to bring about um, a cool two seat sports car that was all electric that would change the notion of what an electric car could be, that it wouldn't be um, a compliance car, that it wouldn't be uh, a golf cart, uh, that it could be something that you would, you know, take out on a Friday night date and impress your friends with.
1: Yeah, let let me um, press you on that point because, as you say, I think for many in the industry, the assumption was that those interest electric vehicles were cost-conscious buyers, that they were looking for vehicles that would reduce the maintenance costs. And one of the interesting choices that Tesla makes early on, even before Musk takes over as CEO, was to prioritize the development of a high-end roadster. Uh, That may seem counterintuitive for some of our listeners. It seems to me one might think you'd want to build a vehicle for a broader segment of the population before going more specialized. How was the choice to pursue a high-end roadster wrapped up in the idea of selling a vision of a new, exciting, and and different future?
2: Yeah, you hit it on the head there. The conventional thing was, in order for this to become something that was viable, uh, car companies were thinking about how they could get scale With the batteries, and in order to do that, they needed to sell a lot of them. And how do you sell a lot of cars? You make it affordable. And you know, the kind of the idea at that period of time was cost-conscious people would be buying these vehicles. Whereas Tesla was thinking. Uh, in a different way. The trendsetters, that early adoption of the newest technology uh, starts at a higher price point. Typically, uh, you look at, think about the iPhone. The iPhone is very expensive compared to other phones out there. And the newest technology starts at the higher price and kind of uh, steps its way down to the masses. And that's how it actually had been, years in the automotive industry, you think about the way General Motors introduced technology through its Cadillac brand, and then bring it to the masses eventually to Chevrolet. And this is kind of, uh, you know, how these things uh, occurred, in part because early adopters are willing to spend more uh, people who are conscious of, uh, you know, the latest trends or want to kind of project who they are through uh, something as cool as a car, uh, they're, they're willing to, to spend more. So the yeah, other insight that Martin Eberhart, who was the founding CEO, had he was a guy that came out of personal electronics. He'd been kind of steeped in Silicon Valley for a number of years. And he was also, you know, interested in, in cars and sports cars. And he knew from personal experience that if you have a sports car in your garage and it's not your maybe your daily driver, that you're going to be willing to kind of maybe perhaps overlook some of its eccentricities uh, because it was a cool something cool that you were taking it on the weekends. and It wasn't, uh, you know, you were you were maybe just a little bit more willing to forgive. And the thought, the realization was that the early cars were probably going to be a challenge and they might not be perfect, but people would be willing to overlook that. And that was really uh, very helpful because what you see with those early roadster buyers, that's the the car that they eventually came out with the Tesla, uh, was that they were very loyal. Some of them were motivated by green kind of technology, but some of them were motivated purely because it was, they thought a cool car and they had bought into the kind of the brand. And these people were very forgiving in the early days. I mean, the car, it was delayed. It cost more than originally thought it was going to cost and didn't necessarily have um, all the refinements you might expect to see in a hundred thousand dollar car, uh, but you were buying into something that was perceived as cool. and that that perception was very critical for Tesla uh, early on and even to this day because you think about you know other brands in the automotive industry, Jeep, for example, they've created a brand. People are willing to pay extra for it. They're willing to kind of jump through hoops for it. And so that was one of the key things, insights that Tesla had early on, was to how to make something cool, that then could you know also happen to be an electric car. You really see that with the development of their of the Model S, which is their next vehicle that Elon Musk was really pushing the team to make the best car out there that just happened to be electric, and that there wouldn't be compromises. That you were you were if you were buying it, you weren't saying, "Well, oh, it's an electric car, but it's cool." You were saying, "This is a Model S." it's cool. And oh, yeah, it's electric, too. Hmm.
1: We'll come back, Tim, before we wrap up to the issue of the kind of culture and philosophy of Tesla and how it's wrapped up in the consumer market. But maybe one more scene-setting question. You alluded in your last answer that notwithstanding Musk's inextricable link with Tesla, it wasn't his initial conception. He didn't start the company you want to just talk a bit about how Musk came to be involved in Tesla and how he ultimately took it over?
2: Yeah, the founding story of Tesla is as a messy not black or white. Lee um, so Days was interested in electrification of the automobile. He was um, thinking about uh, trying to convert a sports car into an electric vehicle. So he was having these ideas, but his love at that period of time was, and his attention was focused on his startup, which we know as SpaceX, a rocket company with the idea that of taking humanity to Mars, and he had set up in Los Angeles, he'd had he created a fortune from um, his involvement with uh, what we now know as PayPal, and that's kind of where his life's work was at that point in time. Uh, meanwhile, in Silicon Valley, uh, you had uh, Martin Eberhardt and his friends uh, thinking about this electric car and this market, and you know by happenstance, the two Martin and Elon are connected, and Elon becomes. Uh, the biggest investor and becomes the chairman. And so without Elon, there probably wouldn't have been a Tesla, but the early ideas of Tesla Motors Inc. were founded months before the two met. Now, they hadn't gotten really off the ground at that point and really was nothing, probably more than a, a business plan and a small office. But the early days of Tesla were largely shaped by uh, Martin uh, Eberhardt, who built a team. A lot of the team were people he had worked with on his previous startup, or, or uh, people he knew in the community. But one of the key hires uh, that for Tesla and really considered a founder was a man named JB Straubel. At the time, he was really just a recent college grad from Stanford. Uh, he'd gotten a master's and, and an undergraduate degree, and he had actually had already, he had previously met Elon. Uh, and had sold him on the idea of an electric car, and wanted was trying to had raised a little bit of money to create a, essentially a prototype that JB thought could show the world that electric car was possible, and then maybe get people excited for it. And once JB realized that Elon was founding, it was funding a Tesla, he got on board and was really really integral in the development of the battery technology that would be really the real kind of secret sauce of Tesla. Tesla was founded on the idea that basically this kind of belief that they could take off the shelf batteries that were already being made for laptops and repurpose them for a car, which would give them the scale needed to bring the cost down and make the car eventually affordable. Now, things didn't quite work out that way, but you know the basic uh, framework there was there. And so they used lithium ion cells. They would take these uh, fat finger-sized cells. They would have to string together thousands of them. To get enough juice to power the car, they'd put it in a battery pack, they would manage it with software. And JB and his team, he put together a team, a lot of people from Stanford that he knew, and they developed that technology. And the key breakthrough was the management of the the heat that those cells produced or could produce. The challenge and why the traditional auto industry hadn't gone down this route was Essentially, the auto industry was always looking for the perfect technology in the battery cell. And, and it, but the problem with that, it was either too expensive or didn't quite have the range. Whereas the lithium-ion cell was there, it was a known thing, and the industry was concerned that it might be uh, too volatile, that it might be dangerous, that it could create fires. And in fact, early on, Tesla struggled to get these cells in large quantities because the battery makers didn't want to be associated with a car with the fear that it might create fires and put people's lives in danger. And so JB and uh, Martin and his team really had a struggle with figuring out a way to keep that from happening. And they developed this battery pack management system that was really cutting edge. It was really the key to Tesla's technology going forward, essentially allowing uh, the, the heat from those cells to be dissipated in a way that they would not be uh, largely dangerous. And that has proven to be the case here. I mean, you occasionally hear about a fire, just like you'll occasionally hear about a, a gasoline car having a fire, but they've been able to put millions and millions of these cells on the road and now has pushed the industry toward, uh, to use lithium-ion cells in different forms or whatnot.
1: It's such a, a key point, Tim. Uh, it, one of the most fascinating aspects of the book for me was that the core battery itself was a conventional technology. The innovative genius of Tesla was to ensure that the cars didn't turn into driving bombs. And that trajectory from 2003, and then when Musk takes over in 2008 is obviously a kind of critical part of that evolution. You say that when you started on this project in 2018, you thought you were gonna be documenting Tesla's bankruptcy. I have two questions on this point. One, why did you think that at the time? What was the context? And two, what happened? How did you go from a story of a pending bankruptcy to one of the highest valued companies in the world?
2: Yeah, you're right. It it looked pretty bleak for Tesla in the summer of 2018. Uh, You have to remember this was a period of time when Elon Musk was in the news for a lot of the wrong reasons. Uh, the company was about a year behind and struggling to to ramp up production of the Model 3 uh, compact sedan, which was really a make or break bet that the company had made, that they could bring uh, a relatively affordable electric car to the masses that would essentially recast Tesla from being a niche luxury car maker to something that uh, could compete against the likes of General Motors or Ford or Volkswagen uh, and, and kind of get the global scale they need to have not hundreds of thousands of sales a year, but millions of vehicles sold uh, a year. And the model three that uh, was really unheard of for the masses. When it was revealed uh, in 2016, it was, you know, greeted with great excitement. Uh, people were literally lining up around the blocks of these stores to put in orders for a car that they had never driven uh, and weren't really clear when it was going to come out. And this had built up a lot of anticipation for the vehicle. And when production began in 2017, it was uh, much harder than Tesla had expected. Uh, you have to remember, they were going from making uh, you know, a relatively small number of vehicles uh, on an annual basis compared to the rest of the auto industry to becoming uh, you know much bigger in, in their, their scope and ambitions. And it was just tough. And they, the problem for Tesla, going back to the beginning, uh, into 2018, was um, cash. Being in the auto auto industry is a capital intensive business. Uh, these uh, businesses eat cash uh, for breakfast, and and if you aren't uh, paying attention, it um, can be the end of you. And that was what it looked like for Tesla in the summer of eighteen. Their cash was running low. They were uh, Elon would not admit it at the time, but now admits that they were pretty close to death. The company was close to the abyss, and really, the, the key was to get production to a certain level, that they could then sell those cars to generate the cash they needed to keep the lights on. And meanwhile, Elon was uh, burning through executives. Uh, at one point in time, the, c- the count was more than 50 vice presidents or higher uh, executive rank at the company. had left uh, either by choice or because he had grown tired of them. He, lieutenants, and deputies were gone and he was sleeping on the factory floor trying to hold it all together. And ultimately, the solution to, to fix their production problems, which uh, were because they, he believed in kind of turning a lot of the work over to robots, and that was a lot harder than he anticipated, was to, to start essentially making a lot of the cars not quite by hand, but pretty close to by hand under a tent outside of the factory, just to untangle the knots. And so once they got production going, in the summer of 2018. Then it was a matter of delivering these vehicles, which was a struggle because they never had dealt with so many cars uh, at one point. And it, is, it, was, it was a race to to have these sales or run out of cash. And so it looked pretty bleak. And so when I began, that's that was the scenario. And the, what ultimately occurred was the, the cars started hitting the streets and they were able to keep production going and they were able to, to get the sales they needed to generate money. But then also a second thing occurred, which was the, the, really the issue was they needed greater scale a, to bring costs down, but also to generate more money. They were able to get a deal to go into China to open a factory there, to tap the you know, the, the world's uh, largest auto market, a huge market for electric vehicles, a huge market for luxury vehicles, and um, really tap into this p- great potential. And so they, with really record time, they were able to open a factory there and start production. And those kind of two things, getting production on for the U.S. and production on for China, really uh, turned on the spigot and uh, allowed uh, them to, to kind of meet the goals that they had forecast, Surprise a lot of people, and really changed the minds of a lot of people on Wall Street about the future of the car. They, they'd already kind of, the, the investor community had already been kind of betting that Tesla and Elon Musk could potentially be the future, that the electric car was there. Um, but the success that they had uh, in 2020, the, the the mindset changed that the future uh, was going to be electric, but it was also going to be heavily dominated by Tesla. At least that was the bet that you saw in a lot of people. And I raised the, the stock price to such levels that the company became the world's most valuable automaker, despite having just a fraction of the sales. Uh, and it also it, it solved one of the biggest problems tesla had from the get-go that issue of cash that allowed them to very cheaply raise money um to kind of build a fortress balance sheet it allows them to uh, perhaps weather an inevitable downturn but also fuel future growth which then helps the stock keep up because investors are seeing the potential for the future so really kind of a a very unique dynamic that uh, that allowed Tesla to, to get firm uh, footing uh, unlike unlike they had in 2018 when things looked pretty bleak.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: You mentioned, uh, Tim, the embrace of Tesla by both China and Wall Street. How much of Tesla's success is a reflection of the inherent futurism of Musk's personal philosophy of progress? You know, that is to say, for those buying or investing in Tesla, how much of it is buying into his vision for the future?
2: It's a huge part of it. I mean, you know, Elon Musk is a very unique individual. I mean, just, you know, he likes to think of himself as an engineer. He likes to talk about how that's where he likes to focus his time and his attention. And I have no doubt that that's what excites him. Probably the real value that he added to Tesla over the years is his ability to sell his vision for the future, sell it to customers, which was important, but more importantly, sell it to investors to raise the kind of cash needed to keep the company afloat during those troubled times when they were still learning how to walk time and time again. Tesla has been able to go to public markets uh, and raise billions and billions of dollars despite the fact that they had years and years of red ink. People bought into what he was was selling, in part because early on, the company had some incredible wins. The Roadster was unlike any electric car that uh, the public had seen before. The Model S was perceived by many to actually be uh, one of the greatest cars of a generation. And the Model 3, while it didn't deliver on the promise of the price, the low price point that Elon had long talked about, it was pretty close and it was attainable for a lot of people at a time when the average cost of a new car had kind of creeped up beyond what it was in the past anyway. And, And the Model 3 was all of a sudden kind of, you know, was there in a way that Nobody had anticipated before, and the ability to deliver on those things was very difficult. But there was proof points, and you know, there's also a lot of people out in the world who are betting against Tesla because of his bravado and ego and kind of you know some of the broken promises or the exaggerations that he has made over the years, and that's it. It creates, in some ways, uh, a lot of drama uh, that the company has to deal with. That drama also generates attention. And that attention um, helps, you know, f- sell cars sometimes. People know what Tesla is. Uh, we're talking about it here. It, you, you know, people are talking about it all over the internet. And Elon has been able to be one of those rare uh, corporate titans who goes from, you know, earnings conference calls to being in uh, mainstream publications, gossip magazines, uh, and a, and really a king on on social media. His Twitter following um, is massive, which provides you know a huge uh, upside at times. Sometimes um, it provides downside when he uh, does things that perhaps are regrettable to the company, but it allows the company to not have to. Advertise in traditional ways on TV, like a General Motors, and so there's there's good there's there's some good and there's some bad
1: there. I've heard you say that if SpaceX is Musk's wife, Tesla might be described as his mistress, his spicy mistress. <laughs> Let's just talk a bit about the integration of his various businesses and technologies. To what extent is Tesla, SpaceX, and Starlink connected? How much is he leveraging the r and d technology or even marketing profiles of these different businesses?
2: Well, you know there's they're individual i mean Spacex is a different company than Tesla. Tesla's publicly traded. Spacex is privately held. but you know Elon is the kind of the CEO he's the he's the top guy at both of these companies, and the other startups that he has, if not the top guy, he's definitely in the background you know, letting his opinions known. And he kind of describes that he tries to spend half his time with SpaceX, half of it with Tesla, and then a little bit of time with these other things. And in reality, he's really kind of jumping between uh, fires, uh, wherever is the most urgent issue is where his attention goes. And so in 2018, he's sleeping on the factory floor uh, at Tesla's factory outside of the Bay Area in San Francisco, Trying to save the company um, these days, he seems to be very uh, focused on what SpaceX is doing, and this has kind of been—you've seen this pattern over the years—is uh, he's is been doing this, and you see some crossover marketing. For example, uh, Tesla definitely had a coup, you know, years ago when at a SpaceX launch, they they included a Tesla Roadster it is to demonstrate the pay the payload package. So they've launched a Roadster towards Mars. You, know, you can't, GM probably would love something like that. I mean, that's, you know, that was dominating uh, social media for forever. I mean, to this day, you still see it. And it, it creates this, this aura of, of the future of technology forward kind of brand uh, on Tesla, which, you know, Elon has been very uh, astute and very savvy in, in trying to kind of continue that presence for Tesla. And SpaceX definitely helps on that. It's also got to the point now when SpaceX began, the idea was pretty crazy what he was doing. And it, the Roadster was much more, people could understand that cars, people could understand cars. They got a lot of attention. It really helped build his profile. But now it's got to the point where SpaceX is everywhere as well. You, you know, the two the twin things, it, you know, really are a lot of fuel and you can see him kind of bounce between the two. And so there's always some kind of Elon Musk ink, if you will. Kind of Storyline going out there.
1: Uh, just a penultimate question, uh, Tim. Uh, one of the things, uh, uh, interesting things about Musk and Tesla is that, well, you recognize that they deserve credit for some of the innovations that have contributed to progress electric vehicles. It's noteworthy that President Biden rarely mentions them when he talks about the industry. What do you attribute that to? Do you think that Musk and Tesla get sufficient credit for creating the conditions to the mainstreaming of electric vehicles in America?
2: You know, a lot of people always want to know what's the future of Tesla. Where is it going to be? You know, in the generation from now, it's hard to say. But without a doubt, if Tesla, if there's no Tesla tomorrow, if it just went away all of a sudden, you know, it's clear that Tesla and Elon Musk's vision for the future of the car is winning the day. And that's you can say that because look at what General Motors, look at what Ford, look at what Volkswagen, look at what Toyota, look at what all the mighty t- car titans of the world are doing. That's vesting billions and billions of dollars to bring electric cars uh, to the roadways. You know, and it, we haven't quite seen the huge sales uh, of electric cars yet. I mean, people are not in mass running out and buying them. It's still a small percentage of overall sales, but these companies are betting that the future is electric, in part because the success of Tesla has shown Wall Street and investors that they think that's the future, but it's also shown regulators around the world that customers, if given the opportunity to buy a sexy, to buy um, a useful electric car, will do that. And so Tesla's success has given them kind of the leverage they need to regulate in such a way that electric cars are going to be uh, needed in places like Europe and China. And so these car makers are having. To do this as well. So what Tesla did was create this, this kind of critical mass. And so the future uh, at this point, uh, the bet is the bet of the century, really that the car is going electric. Now, when you ask, you know, people you know are caught up in kind of the political squabbles of today. Uh, with President Biden and Elon Musk, you know, there's other things uh, apparently going on, right? It, Joe Biden uh, has long counted on United Auto Workers a Union for political support. And Elon Musk has been, uh, you know, spent a lot of time fighting efforts to unionize uh, his factory in California. Um, it has been a pretty brutal uh, fight. I, it's not, perhaps brutal isn't the right term. It's nothing like the days of uh, early Detroit, Ah, uh, but it hasn't gone uh, very smoothly in recent years. So there's some tension there, and you know, it's also if you look at President Biden's history, he has long been a supporter of Detroit automakers. Uh, he was part of the Obama administration when they saved or uh, when they helped restructure General Motors through its uh, bankruptcy and to make the the new GM. You know, he's he's a he's often he, I have seen him at auto shows. He likes to drive his. Corvette. He likes to get behind the wheel. He's a car guy. Uh, And there's clearly some tension there between Musk and and the the current administration.
1: Uh, Tim, you anticipated my last question about uh, your look into the future. So let's just wrap up our conversation here. The book is Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. Tim Higgins from the Wall Street Journal, thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues.
2: Well, thank you. It was fun.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.